If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Luke chapter 23, please. Luke chapter 23, we're going to look at verse 34. The message is entitled, A Prayer for Forgiveness. Jesus, as you know, has been arrested, tried. He has been condemned to death on the cross. A death devised to bring about such torture, such agony, such shame, that what is reserved for the worst of criminals. No Roman would ever be crucified. Many would die under the scourging of the soldiers, as we read many times through the Gospels, as they scourged Jesus and mocked him and beat him. Many of them would never survive the cat of nine tails or ever reach their cross. Ligaments would be exposed, lungs bleeding profusely. Those who uh, survive would ultimately be overcome by unable to breathe as they couldn't push up on their feet and support their buttocks on the little seat. And so they couldn't pull in the last breath of air so they would suffocate. But a man could last days. It wasn't a quick death. It was very torturous. Unable to pull himself, the muscles, the ligaments all giving way, sometimes dislocating. And um, crucifixion was um, devised by the Carthaginians and um, refined by the Persians and perfected by the Romans. And the Romans were excellent executors. They intimidated the world. They lined the roads with men crucified, not always on crosses as we see, but on trees. Um, saying clearly, if you raise your hand against Rome, there's a price to pay. And you know what? That kind of stuff works. We see it even in the attack of ISIS, terror. That's why it's called terror. You intimidate people. The usual conduct of those being crucified was that of um, yelling, cursing and spitting and whatever else towards the executioners because they were such um, suffering and humiliation and all, the taunting that went on. But Jesus is found praying for his enemies. Quite different than the usual crucifixion. Now there are two other men that are crucified next to him. They, they were not praying. <laughs> for their enemies. You know Jesus began his ministry in prayer as you know. Luke 3, 21 tells us that. And Jesus had impressed his disciples so immensely about his prayer life. That they asked him to teach him to pray in Luke 11, 1 through 4. Jesus had prayed for God's will at Gethsemane and it cost him deeply and dearly. Even as he said, not my will, but your will be done. And he sweat as the word drops of blood, the bursting of the uh, capillaries coming through intensely. Jesus was fulfilling prophecy as he prayed for his, inner, for his uh, 
uh, enemies as the intercessor and the sinners that he was dying for, which included the whole world, Isaiah 53 tells us, the transgressors. But Jesus, even while he's on the cross, never saw anyone beyond the reach of prayer. True prayer always begins with God, not with man. And as we're open to God, he deals with our hearts and he lays those burdens, those directions, those impulses, those leanings. So that we can lift it to him so he can get his will done. Moses one day said, Lord, if you can't forgive them, blot my name out of the book of life in Mount Sinai. Now you've got one of two choices. Either Moses were more patient and more loving and more merciful than God. Or God, that, or God put that on his heart. I'll go that God put it on his heart. <laughs> Just that simple. Jesus assures us that the Father always heard him in prayer. Because he always did those things that please the Father in John eleven forty two, An incredible, incredible statement that none of us would even dare to declare, even think about it. Jesus was practicing here on the cross what he had preached and taught to his disciples. Loving and praying for his enemies. One of the Beatitudes in Matthew five forty four. You see, Jesus never asks of you and myself, if we're Christians, to do anything but what he has enabled us for. But he always leads by example, so he first went to the cross to suffer, not for himself, but for others, while praying for his enemies, while they insulted him, blasphemed him, reviled him. So that I can never say to Jesus, you do not understand my life. Jesus did not believe in dysfunctionalism. <laughs> Jesus does not believe in politically correctness. Jesus says, if you're a Christian, you are all mine. A Christian can never say, I cannot. All that a Christian can say is, I will not. Are we clear on that? Because he enables me if he calls me. What an incredible comfort that is. What an incredible confidence that is. He said, unless a corner we fall to the ground and abides alone, but if it dies, it brings forth much grain, John twelve twenty four. This is what Jesus was doing on the cross. So as we remember Good Friday, we want to look at the first scene of Jesus from the cross where Jesus here offers his prayer of intercession for his enemies. A prayer of forgiveness marked by three things. Let me read here our text. Luke 23, 34 says, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Three things that is marked by is as follows. First, you have the person addressed, the Father. Second, you have the petition asked, forgive them. Third, you have the perspective argument, 
for they know not what they do. Interesting statement. The person addresses the Father, the Father of God, the Father of those who are born again. The address reveals intimate and personal relationship. No Jew would ever um, address God in the Old Testament as Father. You'll never find it in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God is found in a relationship as Father only to the nation, never to an individual. He's the Father of Israel, the nation. And so the context of that we find in Jeremiah 3, 4, and 19, it's found twice, and that is to God as the father of the nation, but never to an individual. It is only in the, Old, the New Testament that we find that privilege because as Jesus brings us to the father. In fact, the address confirms his ongoing claims of being God's son. He had declared that no one knew the Father but the Son, another amazing statement of Jesus. If you just read the Gospels straight through, any one of them, or all four of them, you have to just be in awe of the audacity of some of the words of Jesus. Because there's only one of two things you can say. This guy really is who he says he is, or he's absolutely crazy. There's no other option. In Matthew eleven twenty seven, he says, All things have been delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son to reveal him. So there's a chain of command. There's a process by which God has set up for man to come to him, the Father to the Son, and he is the one, and he sent the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is working in the operation and process to save men and women. Jesus had prayed to the Father to glorify him. If you remember in John 17, 1 through 5, this is really the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer in the Gospel earlier, the teacher's disciple, is really a bad title because Jesus could have never and would have never prayed that prayer. It's a sample prayer of what should be in our prayers. But he would never have prayed it or could have prayed it because you're asking for forgiveness of sins and Jesus had no sin. But this is the Lord's Prayer. As he's ready to go to the cross, listen to John 17, 1 through 5. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the works which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He emptied himself of his glory, never of his deity. He took on flesh and he walked among men. Philippians 2.5 Being in the form of God, he didn't think it to be robbery with God. That being, the word being in the Greek is an antecedent condition. It means he was God before he came, he was God when he was here, and he was God when he left. And guess what he is right now? The God-man. He has his glorified body, sitting at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for those who are Christian and for those who call on his name to be saved. 
Wow. God address or the address here looks to the um, relationship he was making possible for man to have. Jesus spoke of God as his father. My father. And as the father of the disciples, your father. But he never joined them together. In other words, when he was with his disciples, he said, your father. And he said, my father. But he never said, our father. Ever. He's on the cross to establish that relationship. Jesus never taught that God was the father of all men, but that he was the creator of all men. We come into that fatherly relationship, Abba, Father, an endearment term that is used in Galatians and in Romans, through the new birth of Jesus Christ. The fatherhood of God was only possible through and in that relationship to Jesus Christ. He who has the Son has life. He who has not the Son has not life. The one who has the Son also has the Father. So to have the Father, you've got to come through the Son. If you reject the Son, you don't get the Father. The Father and Son are one only through the Son. No other way. So you have the first, the second person of the Trinity... And then when he leaves this earth, he sends the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, which is a silent witness of Jesus Christ. Never speaks of himself, brings glory to himself, but points us to Jesus Christ. Listen to Jesus in uh, John 10, 9 through 10. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pastures. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So it's through the new birth, through accepting Jesus Christ, through believing who he said he was, that I call upon him and then I live abundantly. Now, when, when, when I was in the world, I thought I, I, I really lived it up some weeks and some weekends. I wouldn't eat, I wouldn't sleep for two or three days. Man, I partied. And I came home all jacked up. And I said, oh, that was fun. That was living. No, that was dying. Hurt me health-wise. But I, I, I interpreted it as living because I was dead. Now being born again, I really live. <laughs> it's a whole different life. Rather than destruction, it's edification doesn't mean that you're perfect doesn't mean you're sinless it means that you understand right and wrong in a very clear sense and you understand what pleases God and what doesn't please God big difference so the person addressed was the father by Jesus Christ as he's hanging on the cross secondly the petition asked is forgive them wow just two words but how how impossible are these words when it comes to the human perspective? Forgiveness is a release or a loosening of something so as to be free of it. The word forgive means to let go, to cancel. 
to leave or to put in motion and send away to discharge. It's like cutting off a weight that bogs you down. It's just constant burden. His concern was not for himself, for he had no sin. His concern was for others, sinners. In classical Greek, it is used of releasing and sending away a divorced woman. A separation from her husband. A severing of identity with her husband. A complete party. Forgiveness would be possible because God's holy justice would be satisfied on the cross. So while he's making this petition, there's the basis by which he can make this petition. God didn't just turn his head or ignore sin. The father didn't say, well, you are my son, I'll just shine those on, no big deal. God is holy, just and good. He cannot contradict his attributes. When God does something, it has to be according to his attributes. He cannot violate them. God didn't violate his holiness or righteousness. God made an atonement for sin by and through his son. Luke 24, 46 and 47 says, And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So then the centurion, when he saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. This conclusion is not by intellectual quest of humanity, but by illumination of the Spirit of God. All who are open to God, God meets them. Do you realize some people just walk in a hotel, open the Bible, and get saved on their own? Or somebody just talks to them on the street? God saves people in all kinds of ways, but He always does it through His Word. Always through His Word. God made Jesus the payment and the substitute for our sins, the sins of the world. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says that God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So he took all my sin and put it on him. And he took all his holdings and put it on me. Who do you think got the best deal? First John 2, 2 says that he was a propitiation for our sins, and not ours alone, but the whole world. See, Jesus didn't just die for a set number of people, the chosen frozen. That's for the whole world. The whole world in the Bible means the whole world. The word propitiation has to do with the Old Testament sacrifices and satisfying the penalty. It was through the blood of that animal. That innocent animal would pay for the individual's sin and that person would take the animal and tie him to the pole and he would take the knife and cut his throat and he would see the blood fly and the animal squeal and hit the ground. And when he looked on that animal, he was to be reminded, that should have been you. Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. That should have been me up there. 
as God's wrath was being poured out. The payment was a substitute for the man till the payment was to come, Jesus Christ. So all the Old Testament sacrifices were IOUs of the true payment to come. In fact, John the Baptist uh, declared to his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world in John one twenty nine. Every Jew who heard John understood the process of sacrificial system of the laying of hands, all that. God has schooled them for 2,000 years, yet they missed their Messiah. 2,000 years. God declared that only blood could redeem from sin. Leviticus 17.11, I've given you blood as, an, as a token for the atonement upon the altar. Hebrews 9.22, 1 Peter 1.19, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The first sacrifice that God made to cover Adam and Eve's sin was a little animal, Genesis 3.21, and clothed their nakedness. A little animal had to die to atone for their sins. Blood. Being God, he took the hand of man, and being man, he took the hand of God, and he joined us together through his blood for those who trust and believe that his blood cleanses us from all sin. It's interesting that the blood of a baby is never mixed with the blood of the mother and is derived from the father. It's a medical fact. If you're a doctor, you understand this. And since Joseph was not his father, that's why he could be the God-man. Mary was told that which is conceived in use of the Holy Spirit. Emmanuel, God with us. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and God was the Word, and the Word became flesh, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Wow. So what you have is God's wrath falling on Jesus for me and for you. For God laid upon Him the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 53, 6 tells us. Yet in Him there is no sin. He did not sin. He knew no sin. 1 John 3, 5, 1 Peter 2, 22, and others. But he became the substitute. He was made sin for us and tempted in every way as you are, yet without sin. Don't miss that. Without sin. Hebrews 4, 15. Forgiveness then was to come through the Father. And Jesus never asked the Father to forgive others on any other time for he had authority to forgive sins if you read the gospels the paralytic came to him and he said your sins are forgiven in matthew 9 2 in fact you remember the pharisees got a little upset whose is it says he can forgive sin only god can forgive sin duh yeah i'm gone to the woman who uh, washed his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair at Simon's house, he said, your sins are forgiven, Luke seven forty eight. So Jesus just forgave on his own. Here he's asking the Father to forgive them. He's becoming sin at this point. Jesus was now putting aside his divine prerogative of power to forgive sin on earth because he was now being lifted up from the earth as the offering for sin. Matthew 9, 6 and John 12, 32 tell us. 
He was acting as a substitute and numbered with the transgressors, as Isaiah 53, 12 says. In fact, Psalm 22, 1 gives us the evidence of him becoming literal sin as the father turns his back on his son and forsakes Jesus. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In verse 3 of Psalm 22, he says, because you are holy, verse 3. In a way that you and I will never be able to understand in this lifetime is that for the first time, Jesus Christ was separated from the Father because he became sin. There was a literal pouring out of his wrath, a literal separation, a literal payment, a literal victory that went on at the cross. Forgiveness is conditional on repentance and agreement with God then. Many times you hear, well, you know, salvation is unconditional. It is a lie. Salvation is conditional. It's conditional repentance. You must believe who Jesus is and repent from your sins. That is conditional. The imparting of forgiveness by grace through faith is not of ourselves the gift of God in Ephesians 2.8, but it's conditioned upon my acknowledging my sin, my confessing my sin, my abandoning my sin. Receiving forgiveness, that repentance is genuine because it's of God. He convicts me, he illuminates me to see my sin and my lostness. But he doesn't make the decision for me. I make that decision. But the godly repentance that's recorded in 2 Corinthians 7.10 is a godly repentance that means that I changed my mind about who I am in contrast to God and what an enemy I am and the wrath that's upon me. And that my sin destroys my fellowship or my oneness with God. God can have nothing to do with me. He can't. He can't. Be one with me because of my sin, because of my um, hostility towards him, if you will. And therefore, genuine repentance means that I regret not just the consequences of my sins. That's remorse. But I see my sin as against God first, then against man or with man. First is the vertical. The offense of sin is against God, my creator. And then with other people or against other people. And so there's a big difference between godly repentance, which allows me to see my lostness, to call upon God, to be forgiven and to be transformed. And the repentance or regret of the world that says, doggone it, I'm pregnant. It's going to mess up my schooling right now. Or doggone it, I got... A ticket for going 140 miles an hour. It's going to cost me some money. And you cry, but then the next weekend you're out doing the same thing. Because it's only the consequence. Once the consequence is over, we're right back to it. There's a big difference. The imparting of forgiveness is guaranteed by two things. The character of God, which is declared over and over again. Exodus 34, 6 through 7, Joel 2, 13, and remember Jonah 4, 2. He ran away from God because of that. Listen, I'll read Exodus. And the Lord 
passed, the Lord Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord Yahweh, the Lord God Elohim, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. The reason why Jonah ran away from God to Tarshish, which is believed to be the ends of the world, somewhere around Spain, is not because he didn't know his God. He just didn't want to be like his God. He hated the Assyrians. He didn't want them forgiven. You got an Assyrian in your life? You get to heaven, you see them, you're going to jump off? Wow. You see, God's merciful. But if that light is rejected, if that light is ignored, then the darkness becomes greater. And then every succeeding generation passes on its wickedness to the next generation, and the next generation learns sooner and faster and become better sinners. <laughs> The technology that we're under today just makes us worse sinners. Smarter, but smarter towards evil, but not towards good. It progresses. Resistance to the goodness of God leads to consequences. Rather than repentance, it treasures up the wrath of God against the day of wrath and the righteous judgment, Romans 2, 4, and 5 says. So it's like... um, a dam that is built and the rainy days come and the water just builds up and it keeps going higher and higher. And there comes a point where they have to open the gates of that dam so that water can be released. Lest there's so much pressure it can overflow or even burst the dam. Well, a person who keeps rejecting the, the light of God, the word of God, keeps building up that wrath against them. Just like someone who would keep getting parking tickets or speeding tickets and ignores them. Well, they just keep adding up. By the time they catch up to you, they'll put you so deep into a cell, they'll have to pump sunlight to you. This is the same with God. Now, does God delight in this? Never, never. In fact, every time he tries to turn on the light again is so that he might be able to forgive. But it's the hardness of the heart. The heart of man is deceitful, desperately wicked, Jeremiah 79 says. And in this offer of forgiveness, God promises to never remember our sins. God is not like us. I remember every one of my sins. And sometimes you say, Lord, why don't you just cut that part of my brain out? But if I could forgive, forget my sin like God forgives my sin, then I would never know how good God has been to me, wouldn't he? He enables me to walk hand in hand with the beast next to me, telling me that he has forgiven me. Listen to what he says about forgiveness. He says he's cast my sin as far as the east as the west. Psalm 103, 12. I'm so glad he didn't say north and south. I would have run into my sin. 
He says he places behind his back my sin in Isaiah 38, 17. Go home and have someone put a piece of tape between your shoulder blades and then attempt to see it. If you can, you're doing the exorcist. He buries him in the deepest ocean, Micah 7.19 says. And my footnote is, he put a sign there, no fishing. God's the only one that can do this. We can't. You see, the receiving of forgiveness by faith holds me responsible to impart forgiveness to others in obedience. Because I have been forgiven so much that no one will ever sin against me as much as I have sinned against God. And therefore, I am a debtor to forgive, having been forgiven. I am to forgive him proportion as God has forgiven me, Ephesians 4.32 says in Colossians 3.12 and 13. Just as God in Christ has forgiven me. Wow. Jesus said, if you do not forgive those who trespass against you, neither will your Heavenly Father forgive you your sins for fellowship. So as a Christian, I have a great responsibility to forgive as I have been forgiven. Now I'm to require repentance of those who sin against me for forgiveness and full reconciliation. I need to understand that. Luke 17, 3 through 4 says, Take heed to yourself if your brother sins against you. Rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you, saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. The implication is he's sincere, not mockingly. Okay? So I am to demand of others who are Christians to truly be sincere. And I'm to ask forgiveness from both parts to be reconciled. If I don't do that, then I will harbor bitterness and resentment in my heart. Now, if there is no true repentance from the other party, I'm still to require them to repent. If they don't, then it means three things. It would mean I condone to the sin against me if I don't require it. When I sin, God requires me to acknowledge and confess it, right? Am I to do any less towards you? No. It would be to violate righteousness. It would be evidence of no true love on my part. Because if you love someone, you want them to be right with you, right? And you want to be right with them. But let's just say someone says no and they don't repent. But I release you on my part so that it doesn't become a burden on me. But I don't deceive myself thinking that we're reconciled and we're in fellowship. True fellowship is when there's true repentance on both ends and there's reconciliation. 
and absolute forgiveness. For there to be complete forgiveness, there must be genuine repentance in order that there be genuine reconciliation and fellowship. This is exactly what Jesus was accomplishing at the cross for mankind. The petition asked was, forgive them. He's talking to his father. Notice thirdly here, the perspective argument, for they know not what they do. Sometimes the best way to know what something means is to first understand what it does not mean. Let's first look at what it does not mean. This statement does not mean they weren't responsible for their actions. They had cried out, crucify him in Luke 23, 21. They were responsible. It doesn't mean they weren't guilty. They had told Pilate, his blood be on us and on our children in Matthew 27, 25. The petition is not limited to the soldiers here, but to all who act in ignorance. As they look to Christ, as they hear the words of Christ. What it does mean is that they didn't know the magnitude of their sin. By human wisdom, they crucified the Lord of glory, Colossians, or 1 Corinthians 2 8 says. If they, by wisdom of the world, could have said, hey, don't touch him, that's God, don't mess with him, they wouldn't have crucified him. But they didn't know the magnitude of the consequences that would come upon their life by their actions. The extent and laws by sin is never fully perceived nor imagined until after the fact. See, sin is analyzed very sanitary, intellectually, in the compartments. I'll do this and I'll cover myself here and I'll make sure that nobody sees me here and this and that. And it all, you got to control. But then when you cross that line into personally experiencing and crossing that line of committing yourself, now it's blood and guts. Now the emotions, your spirit, your physical being, all is involved. It's a whole different game. Sin is deceptive and pleasurable for a season, promising much, much more than it delivers the consequences, the aftermath. You see, they didn't understand the consequences of their sin. We will not have this man to rule over us. They would be blind and damned. Luke nineteen fourteen. Jesus will allow you to rule your own life if you choose to. He's a perfect gentleman. Jesus warns of such a choice, though. John 3.36 says, He who has a son has life, and he who does not have the son has not life. And the wrath of God abides in him. This is not a statement of joy. Or of smacking of the lips, hoping that the offer isn't taken up. It's a cry of a broken-hearted father. 
warning those who he has created that they might call upon his name to be forgiven and saved. You see, they didn't realize they were fulfilling scripture. They, in ignorance of spiritual blindness, crucified and rejected their own Messiah. He was sent to his own, his own received them not. Jesus said, there's coming one whom you will receive, the Antichrist. See, there is only one sin that is not forgiven in this world and in the world to come. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is the ongoing rejection of the grace of God for forgiveness. You can speak against the Father, you can speak against the Son, but it's the office and the work of the Holy Spirit to convict you, to turn on the light, so that you understand exactly what the gospel means. And if you sit under the gospel, I guarantee you, he will shed the light for it. But he will not make that decision for you. That's your responsibility. So that whatever decision you make, when he judges you, he will be just, holy, and good. He's not responsible for your decision. Having given you the choice. The perspective argument was, for they know not what they do. Some people think they have it all wired. They don't. Some people invest all their life in the wrong things. And sadly, they find out at the end of their life. They've been following the wrong people. Living for the wrong things. Some people try to punish themselves for their sins. As opposed to standing on the promises of God's forgiveness. There's a story told of a time uh, many years ago when a father and daughter were walking through the grass of the Canadian prairie. And um, in the distance, there was a, a prairie fire that was approaching them. And uh, soon they, they would be engulfed in it. And so the father knew that there was only one thing they could do. And that was to burn the ground around them, a large enough area where they could stand in. And as the fire approached them, the little girl was terrified. And she said, Dad, we're going to burn. And the dad assured her, the flames cannot get to us. We are standing where the fire has already been. And so it is with the believer's forgiveness. Their sins have been judged on the person of Jesus Christ. Believers are standing where the flames have already been and therefore are safe. The thief of the cross was forgiven. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Luke 23, 43. The centurion acknowledged Jesus, the Son of God. Surely this is the Son of God in Mark fifteen thirty nine. 3,000 were saved at Pentecost as they asked the question, what must we do to be saved in Acts 2? How about you? 
If you don't know Jesus Christ, he's brought you for such a time as this. The ball is in your court. God has nothing to do with this. He's done it all. You must make a decision. We pray your decision would be for Jesus to call upon his name, that he might forgive you, that he give you a new heart, a new mind, fill you with his spirit, and give to eternal life. And so the prayer of forgiveness by Jesus was answered. The person addressed was the Father. The petition asked was forgive them. And the perspective argument was for they know not what they do. Wow. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't take Friday off? Come, he loves you. Lord, we worship you. We thank you for your grace, your love, your mercy, Lord, that is beyond our understanding. How patient you are with us, Lord. We pray even now, Lord, that you will speak to anyone here who doesn't know you over the Internet, Lord. And the Lord, they would call upon your name and ask your forgiveness that they would enter the kingdom of God by grace through faith. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, right where you sit, I'm not going to ask you to get up and come forward, right where you sit. If you mean it, you walk out of here a new person. If you don't, you walk out the same, dead, headed for hell. But it's your choice. But if you call on the Lord, he will forgive you. It's called a prayer of repentance. Really simple prayer. Asking them to forgive you. So if you're here and you see yourself as lost in need of salvation and that Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead for you, then you can call upon him right now. This is your prayer to him. Right where you sit. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.